Let's stand, if you would, please. Second Chronicles 33, very quickly. Thank you for getting here tonight. Folks just making their way in. And we just appreciate you being here this evening. Second Chronicles 33. Second Chronicles 33. Look around. If your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, share your Bible with him. If you just came in, if you're wondering what we were doing, we have our prayer time. Normally right before preaching and get a prayer page. This got listing a lot of the needs in our church. I hope you'll take some time to pray over those needs. And uh, that'll be a blessing. Pray especially for friend day. We want God to bless you that. Second Chronicles 33. Say amen if you're there. Let's read together. I'm going to read odd. You read even. Can you do that? We're going to read to verse nine. I'm going to read odd. You read even. Okay. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 50 and five years in Jerusalem. Congregation. But for he built again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down and he reared of altars for Balaam and made groves and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Congregation, also he built altars. And he built altars for the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. In the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Congregation, neither will I any more. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Now go down, if you would, with me, please, for a minute. And I want you to see, let me see here. I want you to see verse 13. And I'll read this. And he prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him, and he heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his own kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. I want to preach a message tonight entitled, Coming Home. What a blessing it is to come home, amen. You're away for a long time, it's a blessing to come home. I was over in, I was in the middle of, I don't know where I was at, in Missouri. It was just out in the country out there, okay? And uh, it was way out there. And let me tell you, when there are no street lights out there, you know your way out there. And uh, I, I love that. I love that. I love going to that church. It's one of my favorite pulpits because the pastor has a 357 Magnum with a barrel that long underneath there. It's legal in that illegal in that state there. It's wonderful. He's got another hundred rounds. He showed me where the hundred rounds were. He says, you know, just load it back up. You're ready to go. Anyway, that's not about that's not the message tonight. But uh, uh, but um, but I appreciate being there because just the fact that, you know, I thought about the third day I was ready to come home. When I got off the plane and uh, Brother Solomon picked me up from the airport, I was just glad to get home. And, you know, tonight we are looking to pass the scripture that is just a blessing to come home. We're going to see how a man had to come home and the Lord brought him home. And I want you to see in this passage, Second Chronicles 33, we read about Manasseh. He's the Old Testament narrative of the prodigal son. He's the Old Testament prodigal son. 
And we're going to see God working his life tonight. And I pray that Lord, you'll be encouraged. With it. Now, Father, bless your word this evening. And thank you for this faithful congregation here tonight and those watching by live stream. Lord, tonight we pray for Sally Evans who, and Bob. They're having so many uh, physical ailments right now. We pray you touch your body with wellness and healing. And God, in fact, I just pray for all of our senior saints right now, our young at heart, that God, you touch your bodies with wellness and healing. And God, I pray that you help them to just recover from a lot of things going on. Many are recovering from sicknesses. We pray you touch your bodies with wellness. And tonight, Lord, we need spiritual healing. We, we really need, God, that the balm of Gilead would touch our souls. And, uh, God, we pray for the medicine from above to give us comfort and help and strength. And, God, what we need to have tonight, some of it might feel a little bitter when it goes down, but it may be bitter going down, but thank God it's sweet to the soul. And we pray this evening that you'll be magnified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're new tonight <laughs> to evening service, recently just started coming we've been on a series for a period of time entitled kings and priests and we've just kind of been going through kings and priests and they've all kind of just uh the uh, you know kings and prophets excuse me and they've kind of all just dovetailed with our study through second samuel and so forth there which i'm almost done with that and almost done with joshua and uh, for the last four messages now our fifth one we've looked at king hezekiah we've actually preached more messages and studied more about hezekiah than we have of the other kings because there's so many things about him and uh, we saw in our first message hezekiah and how he dealt with sin. We saw in our second message to study how we saw Hezekiah and how he dealt with a storm in his life. The third thing we saw is we saw Hezekiah and how he dealt with a terminal sickness. And, uh, and then the last message we had before Brother Chapel came is we saw how Hezekiah dealt with, uh, with success. We saw Hezekiah and how, how, how success uh, became a hindrance in his life. And tonight as we look at the last thing, we're really not looking at Hezekiah, but we're looking at Hezekiah and his son. We have a record of one son that he had. The son was born when Hezekiah was 42 years of age. Notice verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years of age. If you remember your chronology, uh, Hezekiah was 25 when he came to the throne. At, at, for, at the 14th year, when he was age 39, they had trouble in the kingdom. That was a year he, when he was just having a lot of things going on. Sennacherib attacked the kingdom. And then later on, he was di- diagnosed with a terminal illness. And the prophet Isaiah came and told him he was going to die. That was his 39th year. You remember that prayer, it was a short prayer, but a powerful prayer that he prayed. And he asked God to give him extended years. And by the way, I believe God can be pleased to give us extended years if we ask of it, as long as we give him the glory, amen? And that's what he sought to do. And God said, I'll give you 15 more years. Now, God was very precise. I don't know of anybody during my lifetime that was ever told how many more years God would give them, but I think they were thankful that every extra day they got was a bonus from God, amen? And so, but God told him he'd have 15 years. And I think because he was in a position of influence, a position of leadership. He can make things happen. And I think God did that because I believe God felt like he could trust that man to be very productive with his 15 years. By the way, there was a lot he did in 14 years. And I think God felt like there was a lot he could do if he had 15 more years. Amen. And so God did that for him. But as we read the chronology there, as we'll see in a minute, Hezekiah didn't do a whole lot with those 15 years. Most monumental of those remaining 15 years was that three years into it, a, a son was born. His name is Manasseh. There's two Manasseh. Manassehs that are prominent in the Old Testament. There's the Manasseh that was the son of Joseph, and there was this Manasseh. Both names mean the same thing. They mean forgetfulness. They mean to forget or cease to forget. When Joseph named his son Manasseh, he wanted to forget all the troubles he had behind him. By the way, that's a good thing, so we don't get bitter. Amen. So forget the things that are behind us here. And uh, and but this son, I don't know really what got into. Uh, 
possess Hezekiah and his wife Hephzibah, as we'll see in a minute, to name him Manasseh. But we're going to see that it kind of was a fitting name for Manasseh as we look at his life there. We're going to look at this prodigal son. We're going to look at tonight that this man, this man Manasseh in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 21, excuse me, Second Kings 21, Second Chronicles 33, 2 Kings 23, verse 12, Jeremiah 15, 4. They tell us much about the biography of this man. There's a lot to be said about this man tonight. And I pray this evening we take some good notes this evening as we look at this man, Manasseh, and we see this man who comes home. Number one, would you notice verse one? We see Manasseh the heir. Manasseh the heir. He was the son of this man by the name of Hezekiah. He was born into royalty. It was destined that he would be king. Some of you fathers if uh, may, may remember years ago i gave out the book to fathers entitled king me if you don't have that book dads i encourage you see me after church tonight i want you to get that book it's important if you have the book it might be a good idea to read that again because hezekiah had a son and was destined this oldest son would become the heir apparent to the throne he would be the heir following hezekiah now notice some things hezekiah's name means jehovah strengthens Hephzibah, which we find her name mentioned in 2 Kings 21.1, Hephzibah means my delight is in her. Now, there's some that believe, some that believe by tradition, that it could be that Hezekiah married the daughter of Isaiah, and this daughter was Hephzibah. We really can't prove that, but there's much in tradition that says that Hephzibah may have been the daughter of Isaiah. Isaiah had a very prominent role in the life of this man Hezekiah. But her name means Hephzibah, and we find her name mentioned in prophecy later on in, in the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah there. Now, remember here, Isaiah, Manasseh comes to the throne at 12 years of age. In Hebrew traditions, boys came of age at the age of 12. Boys were thoroughly ingrained and trained in Hebrew doctrine, the doctrines of God, the Mosaic laws and things of that nature. They were, they were trained and built and developed to become, to be assumed the responsibilities of manhood at the age of 12 in the sense that they would assume many of the spiritual responsibilities there. And he's at the age to 12. And the Bible says it just happens to be at that time that his father died at 54. Now, I, Hezekiah knew he was going to die at 54. Hezekiah knew what his appointed time was. Now, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this is the judgment. We don't really know when we're going to die. We really don't know what that would be. I think that's a good thing we don't know. But I will tell you this, this man, Hezekiah, he knew when he was going to die. He knew his appointment day. He knew he would meet with God. And so when his son was born at his age of 42. And you understand tonight, at 42, you're still young. At 42, you're still in your prime. At 42, you still got a lot of, you still got a lot of uh, unction inside you and, and vitality to do things. And, and you're still strong and you still got your mind is sharp. And at 42, he has his son that was born. Now you would think, you would think that at 42, with a son that was born, maybe the only son he had, that he would pour those 12 years of what was inside of him, what God had done into his life, into the life of this boy by the name of, of Manasseh. But we don't see this happening. And so you have to ask the question is that uh, what really went on with his life? You know, when we look at Manasseh, and you read this with me tonight, we read from verses 2, oh, about 2 through uh, 10 or so, that this boy, is, goes, he's, he goes 180 degrees different from his father. I mean, his father reversed everything that King Ahaz does. Manasseh comes on things we'll see in, on point number 2. Manasseh comes, and he revives everything Ahaz does. Now, my question I want to ask you tonight to think about with me is what happened to Manasseh during those 
those 12 years, what impressions were made on his life that he went in that direction? Now, I'm going to give you a thought. I think part of what may have happened goes back to something Isaiah asked as a question to Hezekiah. He asked this question when Hezekiah got well and the Babylonians, which were, were trying to rise up as, a, as, a, as an emerging nation, they rose up and they sent a gift to him. And, they, and then as he was excited, enthused, somebody was interested in him. And he gave them a tour of his house and of all his belongings and possessions. He showed them everything about himself. He showed them about his military. He showed them his artillery. He showed them everything there. And then Isaiah came and said, who are these people that came? And he told them. And remember Isaiah's question, what have they seen in thy house? Now that question always comes back in my mind. And it comes back to my mind as we think about Manasseh coming to the, coming to the throne at the age of 12. What did Manasseh see in the house? What did he see in the house? What kind of marriage did he see? What kind of Bible reading did he see? What kind of praying did he hear? Did he hear praying at all? What kind of worship of God? What kind of parenting style did he see? I mean, what did he see in the house? That's a good question. And as we examine this man's life, I, I think there's, there's two things that come to my mind as we think about Manasseh the heir. I think about something that grips us as parents, or should grip us as parents, a strong scripture admonition about parenting and child training. And listen tonight, child training is the responsibility of the parent, not the school system. It's the responsibility of the parents and not the church. Our youth fellowship, our college fellowship, we are not there to reform your child. We are there to help be an extension of you to help your child get a heart for God. But if your child's not getting a heart for God at home, it's very difficult for them to get a heart for God at church. Okay? Because they need to see it reinforced. They need to see it exemplified. They need to see that right spirit there. So two verses come to my mind. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's a promise from God. In fact, it's one of those rare verses. It's a precept and a promise. It's a precept and a promise. I think of Ephesians 6, 4. Look at Ephesians 6, 4. And ye fathers. Now, when it says fathers, it's speaking to mothers and fathers, but it's saying the primary leadership role. He's saying, and ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of things I can say, but I'm going to give, just give you some things because we need to move on. I think when we look at these two verses, you might want to write these thoughts down. When you look at Proverbs 22, 6 and Ephesians 6, 4, I think there's four thoughts that come to my mind in terms of the, that every parenting style should consist of and every parenting style must have. Number one, as you look at Proverbs 22, 6 and Ephesians 6, 4, I think it's emphasizing devotion in our home. More than just devotion to God, it's emphasizing devotion and dedication to parenting. Hey, parents, our full-time job is to raise our children. Devotion. They need to see that. Okay, there's devotion. Secondly, there's doctrine. Listen, the doctrine are the rules that you need to have in place. Kids don't like rules. They need rules or there's no structure. They need structure for their home. Rules are good. Hey, listen, if you, if you say, well, why do we have to have doctrine home? Because Solomon said so in the book of Proverbs. He said, my son, give here to my, my doctrine. Okay, over there in Proverbs chapter 4. Your home must have doctrine. Hey, doctrine is what you believe. And what you believe determines how you behave. Amen? 
It's what you believe and how you behave. Hey, you got to, hey, listen, folks, we have to have some, we have to have some things we establish in our homes about everything that goes on in life. We can't leave things untouched and just say, this is okay, that's okay. We've got to make sure whatever we do lines up with the Bible because one day is going to come, that child's going to read the Bible and if our life doesn't line up with what they're reading the Bible, they're going to wonder what is going on in my home. So we see devotion, we see doctrine. By the way, there's discipline. And I want to encourage you as parents tonight, regardless of the tradition received from your families, I remind you tonight, the tradition we've received from the Word of God, the truth from the Word of God, is that discipline is a means of correcting our child. We're trying to correct them from going down the wrong pathway. We're to correct them B-times, the Bible says. B-times means often. We're to correct them with the rod of reproof. We're to correct them often. We're to realize tonight that a child left himself bringeth his mother to shame. We're to realize tonight there's a generation that curses mother and father. We're to realize tonight that discipline is what we're talking about in the, in, in the scriptures. There, there's automatic correction there. Uh, there's also something else. There's direction. I think as we look at Proverbs 22, 6 and Ephesians 6, 4, it's emphasized the importance of direction. Listen to this. In Psalms 127, verse 4, it says this. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. I like that verse when it, think, when it, when it, when it kind of gives us a really vivid, colorful picture about parity. It is the idea of a very strong man, a skilled archer, a man who's practiced diligently. And if you've ever done archery, you know that the bow, the, the, the string or the, 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 on the bow is very, has a very high tension on it. And the first time you do, you realize, man, it takes an incredible amount of strength and practice and, and ability of using your body. It's not just arm strength, it's body strength. You've got, to, you've got to utilize to pull that back. But notice what he's talking about. as an arrow in the hands of a strong man. He's realizing this man is skilled in pulling, the, in pulling the bow back. But what's more important is how he positions that arrow. And where he positions that arrow is where that arrow goes. Hey, watch this tonight. Wherever you point your children, that's where they're going to land. Right? Where you point them is where they're going to land. Hey, every time, everywhere we point our kids, we're like a strong man with an arrow in our, in our hands. Where we point them, that's where they're going to go. And so that's what he's talking about there. So one, we must, he's telling us here in these verses, we must be strong in our parenting. Secondly, we must give direction or point them in our parenting. And listen, and a lot of that comes from just the basics of, of teaching. The basics of teaching and training are repetition, 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 repetition. I mean, you remember those days as a little kid growing up, you learned the alphabet and you learned to count and you learned to go count and to multiply and to add by repetition, repetition, repetition. Hey, that's why scripture memory is a good thing. Amen. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, okay? Hey, uh, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. It's repetition. Repetition's a good thing. They need to repeat over and over again. I know some preachers, they've gone on to heaven, but when they, in those old days, those old preachers would train up their children, and as soon as they were, their little babies, they would just bring the Bible. They'd say, little honey, this is the word of God. I want you to learn. One day you'll be able to talk, and I want you to say the Bible is the word of God. And then the baby would start to talk, and they'd say, by boat, by boat, by boat. And they'd say Bible. And then they say, they, they're teaching the Bible is the Word of God. Bible, Word of God. Bible, Word of God. Well, that sounds kind of cute to us, but you're ingraining in the mind and heart of that child who God is and the authority of His Word. Children need to learn there's proper authority. If they don't learn to respect the authority they can see, they will not learn to respect the authority they cannot see. So notice this tonight. We look at Manasseh, he's 12 years of age, he comes to the throne, he's, he's really, he's come of age as a young man in the sense of a Hebrew young man, and he comes to the throne, and we have to ask ourselves a question, what parenting style influences this young man? Now you've heard me teach this before, and I'm going to teach again, there's four dominant parenting styles. 
There's a neglectful style. Neglectful style is low in love, low in control. A neglectful style looks at the young person and basically just kind of does, is not involved. Low in love, low in control. There's a permissive style. High in love, low in control. Permissive is where the paradise idea, the child is your best friend. Now listen, I want you to love your kids and you want to have be down on their level, but you cannot raise your child as if they're your best friend. They must know and respect authority that you are always the father and the mother. You cannot be their best friend. You say, well, that's not what I learned in sociology or psychology. I know that's not what you learned there, but I'm going to tell you what the Bible says, and the Bible's true. Okay? And the Bible just gives us the right direction. Now, you watch a permissive style. That's where a kid just goes off, and they just want to do their own thing, and they've got to be liberated, and they want to do their thing there. And then you notice there's the authoritarian style. Now, authoritarian style, high in control, low in love. This is a very dominant style where the where there's the, the the kid is always being pushed and pushed and pushed. That's I think I think both the permissive and the authoritarian style. I think that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians six four when he says, "Provoke not a child to wrath." Provoking means to exasperate them. Where on one end the child is craving for your love to discipline them, but you're not disciplining them. They're craving for your love to correct them, but you're not correcting them. You let them get get away with talking back. You let them get away without showing respect. By the way, let me just pause on this, moms and dads. Look up here. Everybody here tonight, listen to me. And I'm not being mean tonight. But you must teach your children in public as soon as they're able to, to shake hands and to look the adult in the eye and to say hello. I get a lot of kids that come by. They don't look me in the eye. They don't know who I am. They just know who or whatever. And I'm nobody special. But I'm telling you, if they treat me like that, I wonder what's going to happen when a police officer comes. You have to teach your children to respect authority. They need to learn how to do that. I understand they're in a public school system. And the public school system today is not like what I went to many, many years ago, many moons ago. I understand that. I realize respect has shifted. But listen, if we don't help them to learn it at church, if they don't learn to see brother so-and-so and to shake hands with brother so-and-so and Mrs. so-and-so at church and to respect the nursery worker and to respect the teacher and to, and to, and to listen that when they're told the first time, that's when they'll obey. When we get this place where we just let them go by, we say, well, Billy, I told you why. Billy, I told you try. Listen, by the third time, they're not going to listen to you. They already know they're in control. So you look at the authoritarian styles the other way. The authoritarian styles the opposite. Do it or else. And, and the authoritarian style, we're more interested in conformity than we are with maturity. Do it because yeah, because I do it. Well, then that doesn't help a kid that's a teenager because a kid, a teenager is trying to unwind themselves and figure out what's going on. And they're trying to make good decisions, but they're realizing, hey, man, I've got no wiggle room to do things. And they're pushing, they're pushing, they're pushing. And that's what the Ephesians 6 forces provoke not a child to wrath because when we provoke a child to wrath, it goes a different direction. Hey, but then there's the authoritative style. We have a neglectful style, low in love, low in control. We have a permissive style that's high in love, low in control. We have an authoritarian style that's that's high in control, low in love. But then there's the authoritative style which tries to achieve the right balance. It is high in love and high in control. Now I'm going to say tonight, there is, there's just, you know, when we look at this, there's no perfect parent. Kids, you may, some of you kids are tonight, you probably shaking your hands thinking, yeah, I can, I can, this is where my dad's at, my mom's at. Let me tell you tonight, you need to pray for your mom and dad, amen? Because they're not perfect. They're learning along the way and they're trying to figure things out. They, they, were, they didn't go to school learning how to be parents. By the way, I don't know if any parents went to school learning how to be a parent, amen? Okay? And by the way, one day you're going to be a parent. And guess what? What you sow, you're going to reap one day. Amen? It's going to come back and get you there. Amen? So I just tell you this evening, we look at this young man and we wonder what happened with this young man. 
Well, go with me back one chapter. Look at Second Chronicles 32, and let's kind of figure out what happened during the remainder years of Hezekiah's life and his influence on Manasseh. Because I'm going to tell you tonight, listen, I'm going to tell you tonight, every young person is shaped by some form of influence. The question is, where is that influence coming from? Who is that influence? And by the way, some kids have a stronger will than others. And that's why discipline comes away. A child that has a very strong will, parents, the best thing you could do for them and for you is to work on that will. You're to, you're to educate them, you're to train them, not based upon, upon the physical, but on the spiritual. And the spiritual is working on the will. Hey, read about Jesus, how Jesus and John the Baptist, the parents had the right idea in raising them up they, about the will. You work and focus on the spirit and the will of the child. The spirit, you're working on maturity. You're working on the spirit of the child there. Now watch what happens. We read here in Second Chronicles 32, Verse 32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah. Now notice that the rest of his acts and his goodness. Behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah of Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the chiefest of the sepulchers of the sons of David and all Judah. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor and his death. Now, that, what's that tell me? That tells me that Hezekiah did finish off his reign as a good man. He wasn't like his father who was so dishonorable. They did not put him in the sepulchers of David, his forefather. He finished honorably. He finished a good man. Now, something else. Look at 2 Kings 20. Now, the, verse 20. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his father's Manasseh's son reigned. said, now watch this. We have some insight that both verses, both Second Chronicles and Second Kings, gives us enough information to figure out some things here. Number one, Hezekiah, during his remaining years, was a good man. I think as a good man, the things he established in those first 14 years, he kept those things going. I think he kept the worship of God high. I think he kept separation well. I think he kept the city fortified. I think he did those things. But as he did so, I think it became more of routine, more than out of a devotional heart. Now notice something else. Then we get to Second Kings. Second King gives us some insight there. Second King says, and the rest of his acts and all his might. And notice the concentration. Listen, he was more involved in those remaining 15 years he had. He was more involved with projects than he was with parenting. That leads me to believe that his parenting style may have been somewhere between between a permissive, more permissive and neglectful style of parenting because he was more involved with problems. You know how it is, moms and dads, when you're overwhelmed with work, you're putting those 12 hours a day and you've got those things going on and you've got house projects going on. You're just trying to make ends meet. And then you're trying to be a good wife or trying to be a good husband. And wives especially have a lot on their plate, men. They've got cooking to do. They've got cleaning to do. They've got those things. They could use a little help from their husbands. And so they go on with all that, and by the, by the time 9 o'clock rolls around, 10 o'clock rolls around, there ain't no energy left. There's no, there's, there's no just energy to get things going, and they've, they've slaved away and worked away with these things. Well, where do you find time to raise a child to nurture admonition? Where do you find the time, like a Susanna Wesley, to give an hour of undivided attention and devotion to that child where you pour your heart out to them and you hear them out and realize sometimes you hear them out, they're going to tell you some tough things, and they're going to tell you some things that you may not want to hear. And there are going to be other days where they may just want to want to talk to you because they just feel like you've been so disconnected, they feel like talking to you is a waste of time anyway. How do you know that? Because I'm in a lot of homes. 
And so you look over here at this man by the name of Hezekiah. What kind of influence did Manasseh have? Hey, Manasseh didn't have a lot of attention. Manasseh wasn't getting attention in the right ears. He had a good dad. He was a good man. He went to church and he did his sacrifice. But I think as he took his son there, he wasn't taking time to explain to his son the emphasis on the sacrifice. I think he left the blood out. I think he left the cross out. I think he left the resurrection out. I think he left the grace of God out. I think he left the mercies of God out. I think he left out the importance of having a personal time with God and had an understanding that when God... God, when we sin, we hurt the heart of God. And if God is hurt, this should bring a tear to our eyes, a young person. And so he went on with his project. He built the pool, the conduit pool. He took the, 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 pool, of, uh, the, 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 the pool of Gihon. Remember I talked about this Sunday night? Gihon means bursting forth. There's a great fountain of water. And he, he saw that and, he, and, he, and he, was a, he was an engineer, a civil engineer in his mindset. And he thought, man, I can connect. I can, can make a connection here and I can build a waterway and I can bring the water in Jerusalem. He's saying my project. And by the way, they didn't have all the equipment and apparatus we have today. And whatever they had to do, inquire entailed a lot of manpower, a lot of oversight. They made mistakes because nobody had done this type of stuff before and they're going from one end to the other into a mountain all that kind of stuff and and listen when we read about in second kings he was a good man but in, but in second kings he was more concerned about projects than he was with parenting hey listen tonight we as we look at this man we're going to see by the time he passes away and goes to be with the lord at age 54 and his son manasseh gets the throne what kind of king what kind of king did he prepare manasseh to be let me ask you a question tonight as we're raising our children what kind of christians are we preparing our children to be we see Manasseh the heir. Would you notice number two, Manasseh the heretic? Now, heresy is a willful and persistent rejection of doctrinal truth. Now, I had to say all that to build up because it's going to go fast now. Heresy is rejection is rejection of the truth. For instance, Calvinism is a heresy. Saying that the blood of Christ doesn't save is a heresy. Saying that Jesus Christ only was eternal at the incarnation, which John MacArthur teaches, is a heresy. It's not doctrine truth. And heresy is a cousin of apostasy. It's synonymous with apostasy. The Bible says a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Heresy divides. And so we see Manasseh, verses 2 through 10, this man is a heretic. Hey, we don't have time to read all because we just read it earlier, but he reverses everything his father does. Hey, there's a series of things that happens. Number one, notice his departure. The Bible says in verse 2, but he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, to give you some commentary insight, you've got to go back to the book of Leviticus, somewhere like chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20, and read about all the abominations that God lists out there. Amen? Now, abomination is a very, very strong word in any language. Abomination means something I hate and detest. And this man had gone so far away. Notice, the things that he did were evil in God's eyes. He was not ashamed to do what he did in the eyes of God. Jeremiah called it a horse forehead in Jeremiah. He was not ashamed of his lifestyle. He wasn't ashamed of what he was doing. He did it out in the open so everyone could see. And verse 3 says, For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up the altars for Balaam, and he made groves, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. Do you understand what he's doing? This man comes into place. He has the Ten Commandments in his possession. The Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt make no graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that included in writing as well as in verbal. 
And this man, he breaks the first and he breaks the second and he breaks the third. And I think he broke the fourth commandment because I don't believe he respected the Sabbath day. It doesn't say that, but you look at where he went. I don't believe he respected the Sabbath day. This man is breaking the commandments. He's breaking the commandments of God. Number five, he did not honor his father and mother. And by the way, the honor your father and mother goes way beyond their lifespan. It also includes after death. This guy is not just a heretic. He's lawless. <laughs> he's departed. He's gone back to idol worship. And it's amazing the people latch on to that quickly. He brought the junk in. He changed the doctrine. He did that which was evil. He built again the high place his father broke down. Now, I believe his father somewhere along the way. And Isaiah and people like that, they told him what his father had done. Because, by the way, Hezekiah was a bigger-than-life hero. What he did was epic in the nation of, of nation of Judah. I mean, he took a stand without dishonoring his father. He took a stand by saying, we, we just don't worship God that way, guys. And he got the Levites right, and he got the priests right. And remember that very first day as he began his king, that very first week, he cleaned out the house of God. He took all the garbage and the filth and the junk. I'll go back and read that again. He did all the things. And you know what, what Manasseh does? Manasseh goes in as a son. He doesn't care. He has no respect for his father. He has no respect for what his father's done. He has no respect for Isaiah. He goes in there, and he wipes everything out. And he goes right up there and he abuses his authority by establishing images and idolatries and things of that nature. He rears up altars for Balaam and he takes groves of trees and he starts planting groves of trees. And then he puts these images that are there. I mean, we find this man and his departure. He did not want to identify with his father as a kind. Hey, that's the problem with millennials today. Millennials that are going into the ministry, they do not identify with the fathers who preceded them. They do not identify with the fathers of the faith who preached the gospel, who preached the King James Version Bible, who preached who preached the blood, who preached the resurrection, who preached the cross. They don't identify those things. They want to have something new. They want to have something different. They say, we don't need to preach it the same way. We don't need to have Sunday night service because that's what we did in the grave. So let me tell you tonight, we need to do so much more because the Bible says we need to do so much more. We need preaching. And by the way, we need more preaching. We need more Bible. We need more soul winning. We need more missions. We need more giving. We need more exercise of faith. And this millennial stuff with these tight blue jeans and open collar and you're putting on these jackets here thinking you're Mr. Cool. Listen, that is not God. God, that is not glorified to God. And what you're doing, you're saying to your forefathers, I'm doing it because I'm with the times. Let me tell you, the times are telling us that Jesus is coming soon. They don't identify with their fathers. Let me tell you tonight, some of you millennials here tonight do not identify with the things of the faith. You need to go back and read your Bible and realize tonight that biblical separation is in the Word of God. He didn't want to identify with his forefather David. David served God by the will of God. By, he served his generation by the will of God. That's a good thing. Everybody tonight should make a decision on. You're going to serve your generation by the will of God. You're going to decide tonight. David was a 17-year-old millennial that got up and decided, I'm going to kill some giants. Hey, some of you 17-year-olds need to get up and kill some giants in your life and do something great for God. He had his departure. But notice, secondly, notice his depravity, verse 6. He caused his children to pass through the fire of the valley of Son of Enoch. Now that tells me just right there that he was between a neglectful and permissive. He was under a neglectful, permissive type of parenting. That burns me up when I read that. A nation that sacrifices children is a pagan nation. A nation that will abort babies and kill children. Listen, if they would do that kind of thing and throw them in the fire and disregard them, have no regard for the children and kill them in gangs and do nothing about that stuff. Let me tell you what, there's something wrong with that nation. Right. 
He brought this stuff back, what his grandfather did. And by the way, all this stuff, the Molino stuff that's going on, that's nothing new. That's old-fashioned pragmatism. It's been around a long time. I've seen seven cycles of that since I've been saved. Seven cycles of that. He observed times. He was superstitious. Use enchantments. He brought witchcraft and sorcery into the kingdom. Can you imagine? Here's a kingdom built on God. Here's a kingdom now sorcery. One of our young men, Brother Kwong's nephew, was take, took some, some friend day cards this week. And he's writing his friend's names on it. And he wasn't doing anything. He was disruptive to the class. Nor was he interfering with the teaching time. Nor was he being rude to the teacher. He was doing it in his time. He wrote their names down. And some teacher came up to him and said, You can't do that. That's illegal. You need to stop that. Man, inside of me, I wanted to raise a ruckus on that right at that moment. You can give a Koran out. You can promote transgenderism in school, but you can't give a friend day flyer out. There's something wrong with that. And the Bible says here, he dealt with the familiar spirit. Sounds just like Saul. And with wizards. And he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 7, and he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God. Hey, listen, he put an image in the house of God. Hey, listen, we don't put images in the house of God to worship God because God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And, I, this, and this just grieves my heart. It says, he says, and he did in the house of God, which God has said to David and to Solomon's son, in this house. You understand? In this house. That's God's house. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever? Hey, commandment number three, or not, number three or number four, the commandment number three is when he took the name of God in vain. He put that carved image up. He said, this house where I put my name. And remind you tonight, it may, this may not be, this may not look like the temple there, but this is still the tabernacle of God. If we're going to worship God here at Heritage Baptist Church in this place, and we're going to lift up the name of Christ through song, and we're going to lift up the name of Christ through preaching, and we're going to preach from the old King James Bible, which is the inspired, preserved word of God, and we're going to lift up Jesus Christ. Let me tell you tonight, this is the tabernacle of God right here. And this is the place where God should be respected. And you need to get off your cell phone and stop texting people and playing games in church and fooling around and disregarding being disrespectful to God or eating in the back of the church or zipping your coffee and doing that stuff when preaching is going on. What you need to do is fold your hands and open your Bible and say, God, you are holy. Give reverence to a holy and righteous God and say, God, I'm sorry that I did such kind of things in church there. Then he said in verse 8, Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your father. He said, man, you, I put you in this land. And let me remind you tonight, Heritage Baptist Church, as we're going on the cusp of being 20 years old, it's going to be a great year next year, 20 years of age. But I'm going to tell you something. God put us here. God put us here. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them. God said, I planted you there. You better listen to what i got to say. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to Aaron to do worse than the heathen. Can you imagine that? Hey, listen. When God's people bring the world into the church and we look more worldly than the world, there's something wrong there. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to Aaron to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. We see his departure. We see his depravity. Notice his disobedience. Look at verse 10. The Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. (laughs) 
Chapter 21, 2 Kings says, And the Lord spake by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations, has done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a euphemism that we, was similar to what we would say. You ever hear, you ever use a euphemism? I felt a chill up my spine. You ever say that? Do you know what I mean by that? You feel a chill up your spine? Okay, you felt, nervous and scared he said it was so scary there their ears would tingle they would they would stay with their ears would start moving and tingling because they were so scared because of the judgments of god and he said i will stretch over jerusalem the line of samaria and the plummet the house of ahab and notice he said i will wipe jerusalem as a man wipe of the dish that's pretty strong wiping it and turning it upside down and i will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they should become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers came forth out of egypt this day they wouldn't hear he that hath an ear let him hear jesus said Notice we don't only see his disobedience we see his defiance look at chapter 21 verse 16 of second kings would you read that second kings 21 Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much. He stopped shedding the blood of animals on the altar. He stopped shedding the blood of oxen and sheep for their sins. And instead, he shed the blood of prophets and the blood of innocent people. Listen, tradition tells us that he took the prophet Isaiah and he put Isaiah inside of a hollow of a tree and he sawed him asunder. And I believe the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews eleven thirty-seven, when he says, By faith, some were sawn asunder. I think vividly and colorfully in that man's mind, he's thinking about the prophet Isaiah of what this man had done to him and what he did was such an atrocity. Nobody really wants to say by truth and by fact that he did it. Because it's so horrendous to think that a king who was the, whose, who was, whose father was a friend of Isaiah, and Isaiah would preach the word of God, that that son would be so disrespectful and so irreverent that he would take the prophet of God and stick him in a tree and saw him in heaven, kill him there, right in front of all those people, the blood gushing forth. Hey Amen. You read 2 Kings 21 verse 16, and Manasseh, the Bible says, he shed innocent blood throughout all the nation. There was the blood of the prophets, there was the blood of the children. The blood of those who spoke against him. We see his departure, we see his depravity, we see disobedience, we see his defiance. But man, what a disaster. Hey, listen tonight, brother and sister Christ. We could lose the church in less than one generation. I go missionary Keith Stenson said we need to keep the ship tight. We see Manasseh, the heir. We see Manasseh, the heretic. Would you notice verse 11? We see Manasseh and his humiliation. Second Chronicles 31, 33. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which shook Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. God was merciful how he described what happened to him. You need to read the historical archives of how the Babylonians dealt with the other nations they were against. The king, we believe, of Assyria was Esarhaddon. Esarhaddon was the son of Sennacherib. The Syrians were still smarting and still hurting and upset and bitter and angry because 185,000 of their best soldiers were slain in the camp by the angel of the Lord. And they plotted one day they would get back at them. And there came a point in time where 
Manasseh got so proud and so cocky, so pompous about what he was doing. He wasn't paying attention to his forces. He wasn't watching his walls. He wasn't watching his waterways. He wasn't watching his defense system. He wasn't building up his military. He wasn't doing any of those things. And then as they started seeing things start to crumble inside the kingdom, he made an alliance with the king of Ethiopia. And then with this alliance with the king of Ethiopia, they thought together, you coming up from the south and me being up here in the north, we can gather together and we could join our forces together and we could fight against the Syrians. While the Syrians had, had one up on them, the Syrians came down led by Esther Hardin and they came and attacked them and took them quickly and took them savagely and listen when they did so they took this king by the name of Manasseh and the tradition tells us the Bible tells they tell us and by historical archives they put a ring in his nose like they would do with an animal like they would do with an oxen they put a ring in his nose because the Syrians always believe when you capture the enemy you humiliate them to the very most you put a ring in his nose and you pull him by a chain and pull him by a rope and you parade him through the streets so all the people can see that he was a humbled king and he was humiliated and he's being pulled by a, a ring in his nose and when they took the king of Egypt and Ethiopia did the same thing. They say over there in the London Museum, they say in the London Museum there that in that museum they have a prism of some kind that this man, Esther Hardin, wrote into and he records in the archives there historically that he led this man, Manasseh, by a ring with a rope in his, with a rope in his hand. He put a ring in his nose and he took this man of Judah, this king of Judah, this king by the name of Manasseh and he led him by a ring and they have a picture that shows two little dwarf-sized men stand laying on the floor with rings in their nose and a rope being, being pulled and holding that rope. This is a giant of a man which is supposed to picture Esther Hart and the king. He's holding these two ropes and showing he towers over them, that he's in control over these men and he has them under their control. Notice again verse 11, what the Bible says here. It says, wherefore the Lord brought upon them, it says here, uh, brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. He was taken away as a captive. He was taken away before the Babylonians even arose. He was taken away as a captive. He was, he was humiliated. He was shamed. Hey, listen, we see the restraint on this man. He would not restrain himself when he had opportunity. So God puts this influence in his life to put restraints on him later on. And let me tell you what. Restraints either come at the front end or they come at the back end. You think about that for a minute. What a mess. You led a kingdom. You were given a kingdom. You had the stewardship of a kingdom. You had the entrustment of a people of God. Let me tell you tonight, it bothers me every day that when we when we come to do the work of God, we take very lightly the work of God here and the people and the souls of people here is a stewardship and a trust of God. This is not a playground. It's not an experimental ground. It's not a place where we experiment to see how the people react. Listen, they are souls whom Jesus Christ died for. And so in verse 12, we see his repentance. When he was in affliction. Would you mull on that for just a minute? When he was in affliction, he besought the Lord as God. I like to think that as God's people, we seek the Lord without having to have affliction. Amen? I think that's a better way to go, isn't it? Is it not? When he was in affliction, he besought the Lord as God and he Humbled himself greatly. May I give you a suggestion tonight? You don't need a message on humility. I don't need a message on humility. We need to practice humility. Greatly. That's what it says. Greatly. He was the equivalent of the belly of the whale. He hit as far rock bottom as you could hit. 
He was down in the pit as far as you could be, you could be. He came to himself. He was at the place where he besought the Lord and humbled himself greatly before the Lord. He was down so low in his life. The only place he could go is look up. He was so sick on his back that he had the only physician that could help him be the great physician. Psalms 107, verse 10 to 13 says, Such as sit in darkness and the shadow of death, bring bow, uh, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their hearts with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. I always wondered, did the psalmist write that because of Manasseh? And we need to close. You see, Manasseh, the heir. Manasseh, the heretic. Manasseh, and his humiliation. But I've got, I want to end with a, a loving note tonight, if you can imagine that this evening. I want you to see Manasseh and his homecoming. Would you do that tonight? I want you to see Manasseh and his homecoming. Would you notice verses 13 to 16? And he prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him. Isn't that a blessing? God, do you, do you still love me? God, would you forgive me? God, I have messed up big time. I have ruined this kingdom. I've dishonored my father's name. I've messed up. He prayed unto God and the Lord entreated him. God answers prayer. You know, the biggest prayer we need to have answered is forgiveness of sins right now. Amen. He prayed unto him and was entreated of him. And he heard his supplication. And he brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. He had homecoming. Amen. He had homecoming. And here's the best part of this. Notice in verse 13. It says, then Manasseh. Then. Then. He had to go through this revolution. He had to go through these gyrations. He had to go through all of this trauma. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. May I say tonight, first of all, in his homecoming, he got saved. Amen. He got saved. He got Jesus. Listen, you might, you listen tonight. If you're not saved, you need to get saved tonight. You need to examine yourself. As Paul said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Manasseh went from being a child of the devil to becoming a child of God. Listen tonight. It could be you were born in a Christian home, but listen, being born in a Christian home won't get you to heaven. You need to be born again. It could be tonight that you've got you you've gotten religious, but you've never been regenerated. You need to get regenerated. It could be tonight you've been convicted, but you've never been converted. It could be tonight that you've practiced traditions, but you've never been transformed. I'm saying tonight this man got the place where he had to get transformation. He had to get conversion. He had to get saved. The Bible says he went through all that. His heart was broken. Tears were flowing. There was tremors going on his soul. He had a great earthquake in his life, and he came to the place. The Bible says then Manasseh knew that the Lord he was God. Listen, you can grow up with the Bible around you and you can grow up with preaching and you can grow up with prayer around you and you can grow up with a youth pastor there and you can grow up with a college pastor there and a Sunday school teacher there but listen if you don't grasp if you don't grasp the things of God personally if you don't take on Jesus personally you're not going to ever get saved listen you got to claim it yourself I cannot pray for you and I cannot do for you what you need to do for yourself tonight you got to get in your own soul. You've got to make not just the faith of your father, your faith. It's got to be your personal faith. You got saved. Now, I don't know. 
But I imagine in our church, we've got a lot of people who've gotten, who've gotten tradition, but they haven't gotten transformed. And they've been convicted, but they haven't been converted. And they have relig- they've been religious, but they're not regenerated. And they want reform, but they need regeneration. And it's not good works, it's grace. And then notice verses 14 to 16. In his homecoming, he got saved. Come home tonight, get saved, amen? You're not really sure you're saved if you've just been lingering around and vacillating and you put it off service after service because you're afraid of what people say. Let me tell you something tonight. If you're afraid of what people say, what, what, th- what they think of you, that'll send you to hell. You ought to be thinking about what God thinks of you. And God says you need to get saved. Behold, now, now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Secondly, in verses 14 to 16, not only did he get saved, but notice he had a right start to the Christian life. Would you notice this? Because I think some of us need what he did here. Notice in verse 14, the first thing he did in verse 14, he put up a wall from the temptations of his past sins. I like that. Amen? Look at it. Now, after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering at the fish gate and compass about Ophel. I wish I had time to talk about all the pictures there and I don't have time. And he raised up a very great height and he put captains of war in all the fenced cities. To do it. Hey, first thing you need to do when you get saved, I want you to do this. You lead people to Christ. First thing to tell them to do, you need to build, build the right walls around your life and build them high. And build them high. Because there's some things that want to get over that wall. You don't want them giving over that wall. There's some temptations. There's some associations. There's some things, some fleshly things that want to take you down. You need to build those walls high to keep them out and keep you safe on the inside. I think there's some Christians tonight. We're a little bit too close to the world. We need to build those walls up to get those things out. Then notice verse 15. He put away the strange gods and altars, the strange gods and altars that he originally built. He made a clean break with idolatry and false worship. Hey, tonight, if whatever you're worshiping that's not God, let's make a clean break and forsake and come to God tonight. Amen. And then verse 16. He repaired the altar of the Lord. Then he made the right sacrifices. I like that. He repaired the altar of the Lord. That's what Elijah did. The altar of the Lord was broken up there on Mount Carmel. He repaired the altar of the Lord. Hey, look at your altar. There's some stones that are loose. Look at your altar. It's been a long time since you put some wood on the altar. It's been a long time since there's been some faith on that altar where you poured some water, buckets of water there to try God. It's been a long time since that that altar's been used. There's a lot of dust on that altar, like there's a lot of dust on that Bible. There's a lot of dust on that place where you used to occupy as prayer. Your prayer place has been missing. Hey, I like the fact he repaired the altar. I think some of us tonight need to repair some altars this evening. We need to repair that devotion place and that time with God and the intimacy with the Lord and time alone with the Lord and confessing our sins and walking with God and praying for some great things for God to do. We need to repair that altar before that old great friend day comes and pray that on that friend day, God will do some great mighty things. I'm saying tonight, this man had a homecoming. He had a homecoming where God received him. It was just like the father who greeted the prodigal son. Listen, he came home and he gave him a ring for his finger and he gave him shoes for his feet and he gave him a robe for his clothing and he gave him, he killed a fatted calf and he said, you're forgiven. And the first thing his father did, he ran and embraced him. I tell you tonight, and then there's a homecoming with God. God, the father's the one that runs out first and he embraces you as his son and he covers you so those rocks can eat you and as he embraces you he lovingly leads you back inside and he puts those shoes on your feet and a ring on your finger not a ring on your nose praise God he puts that ring on your finger and a robe on your clothing and he kills the fatted calf and he brings everybody in and says my son which was lost is now found I'm telling you tonight that man Manasseh he got far away from God but he had a homecoming and listen you need to come home tonight you need to come home to a savior who loves you whose grace is sufficient his mercies are overflowing his love is beckoning to you and calling you tonight to sing I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I want you to come. I want you to come tonight and have an old-fashioned homecoming with God this evening. 
I've wandered far away from God. Lord, I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. I've wasted many precious years. Now I'm coming home. I now repent with bitter tears. Lord, I'm coming home. I'm tired of sin and straying, Lord. Now I'm coming home. I'll trust thy love, believe thy word. Lord, I'm coming home. Coming home. Coming home. Never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. Time to come home. It's time to come home. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that descends. Grace that beckons us. Grace that calls us. God, who's rich in His mercies. Listen, tonight, it's time to come home. Been outside too long. It's time to come home. Father, this evening, we pray this thought here of Manasseh, who went through a lot of stuff, how he came home. We see a man that was an heir, trusted with the stewardship of the kingdom and the lives of people. His heir became a heretic, went far away from God. His heretic experienced humiliation. But through that, for the first time in his life, he learned the importance of restraints. And he came to the place of regeneration. The Bible says now, then, Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. But all of this tonight, the homecoming, revolves on one very difficult thing for us to do. He greatly humbled himself. He besought the Lord and was entreated of him. I ask you tonight, Lord, we feel like our heart has gone far away. We come home tonight. It could be Someone's gone through the motions, but they've never received the Savior. And it could be tonight, the walls have been torn down. We need to build those walls up and build them high and repair some altars. Use the invitation time, Lord, as a time of love, of grace and mercy, reaching out and touching our lives. I give you this moment now, Lord, in Jesus' name. As I ask you to stand with your eyes closed, heads bowed, you can make your way forward tonight. I know it's late. We're going to let you go. But if you need to come, let's come tonight. Do you pray for revival? I think tonight, just looking at the passage, is a precursor for the time when the preacher comes. We need great revival tonight. Would you come home tonight? It burdens my heart. In a lot of our Bible colleges, the preacher will come and preach about salvation and preacher's kids. Kids from Christians' homes, deep down in their heart of hearts, they were scared. They weren't, weren't sure if they were saved. And there they got right with God and got saved. If you've just gone through motions just because somebody wanted to get you to pray a prayer, I, I heard you tonight. If you're not sure you're saved, get saved tonight. Let's get some walls, the right kind of walls built them. Not to keep God's people out, but to keep those foreign things from coming in that can affect us. Let's repair some altars. You married, young married couples... You need to start your altar. You have your time with God. You need to establish tonight that you're going to be, you're living in a mission field. 
and you have a missionary mindset about reaching folk, would you do that tonight? Young people need to come. Word to God that God starts reviving our church through our young people. He greatly humbled himself. You're between 12 and 20. Think about what's being entrusted to you. It will be turned over to you one day. How will you treat it? What we do? And then, parents, how about our parenting style tonight? We're so busy that we're exasperating our children. Let's be honest with them and honest with God. Let's deal with that tonight. Father, tonight, thank you for being so loving, so gracious, so kind. Lord, I know the families here tonight, they love their family. They love their marriages. They love their children. I pray for revival in our homes, revival of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and long-suffering and patience and the fruit of the Spirit. And we'd remind ourselves every day that the, that the fruit of the Spirit is found in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And to have no part with those, those ways that, Lord, we used to do in our past. I pray, Father, this evening that you'd help us to be like Manasseh was at his tail end. He came home. And thank you tonight, Lord, that we can come home. We can come home to God. Get a ring on our finger and a robe on our back. Shoes on our feet and a fatted calf. An embrace from a loving Father who will never let us go. Father, thank you for the incredible love that you give us and display over and over again. In a moment, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Help us to go forth from this place. Revive recharge, replenish tonight. Well, thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, on the way out, thank you for being here tonight. Please make sure you get a prayer page. If you wouldn't, please take some time to pray uh, for these different needs we have. And for some of you who came late, I'd like to ask you to pray for a, a ministry friend of ours. Uh, I just found out from Brother Kent Chisalva, Larney. Um, I just talked, talked with him today just by, by texting. But his mother, Mrs. Mrs. Liberty Jasalva, is Dr. Army Jasalva's wife. He's a pastor of the Bible Baptist Church there in Cebu. Big church, runs over 10,000, 15,000 people. And uh, started churches all over the world. Uh, Mrs. Jasalva has been diagnosed with breast cancer. We don't know to what stage or whatever, but she asked us that we pray for her because they, they have sch- such surgery scheduled. Great, great man of God. And uh, if you'd pray for Mrs. Jasalva and bring her before the Lord, and they appreciate it. I don't have the surgery day or anything like that, but being prayer for that. And then, if you would, just take some time, if you would, this Friend Day. Now, we have, we have Friend Day flyers in English, in Chinese, in Spanish. I asked one of the ushers to have some. They should be on the table. Please help me get those out. And I want you now, tonight, if you would, to please set aside some time this Saturday, next Saturday, if that's the only time you have. Give us an hour, half an hour, whatever. Come join us. If you feel like you can come earlier, I'll have a team that will meet you here. We'll have somebody start. Brother AJ or myself will be here to get you started earlier and uh, to get you going. But let, let's really hit it hard. And I took one of our men last night. And we had a blast last night. I mean, it was getting dark real fast. We had a blast going to these different doors and talking to them and, and uh, getting folks encouraged about it. I made some notes for some folks to follow up on the few people that speak different languages and things. But, but you help us with that. We need to do all we can. We're doing a lot, a lot of flower pass this week. Pray for our UC Berkeley Bible study. They're just finishing up right now. This is their fourth week. They've had four consecutive weeks of visitors coming to them. So I, I'm really praying. I, I, if you ask Brother Erwin, he'll tell you honestly, he feels like he's way over his head. It's just very, very, very overwhelming for him. But he's just gone by faith and just trying to help get, get our students rallied first on this. You pray for them. Pray for God to raise up some men. So anyway, you get some flyers and help us to reach the people for the Lord. And would you pray for Sunday, that we go into Sunday, just a great Sunday preparing for the Lord. And I'll just tell you this, even if all we did was read the Word of God, that's just a blessing because God can bless through the reading of His Word. And let's just pray that God will work through that. And, and if you made some decisions this few days, you know, just ask God to help you through those decisions and pray for our church that God will give us a great revival as it comes up when, when, when Brother Farrell comes. And I believe God, God, I told the staff this, 
I believe God has already given Dr. Farrell exactly what we need to hear on those four nights. I believe that. I believe since his wife has had this bout with leukemia and she's been miraculously put in remission through a bone marrow transplant, it could come back. And I think he lives on pins and needles every day. And I think he has a fresh anointing that, God, that he's never had before in his ministry. And we're praying that God will greatly use So you pray for that and for God to work that. Uh, AGGs, if you can, meet with me in room 103, 104. Get your kids and we'll meet you there. And then deacons, we have a meeting right after that. Thank you for being here tonight. God bless you. You're dismissed.